Satan is the one who really understands people because uh, human suffering is his business. That's his specialty. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, uh, we're in a period of time here between a couple of federal holidays. We had Martin Luther King Day just recently, and we are heading toward President's Day, the other federal holiday. But there's another holiday coming up that is not a day off for people, but it seems like people celebrate it just as much, uh, a little something on February 14th. Absolutely. Valentine's Day. Yeah, coming right up on Valentine's Day. I thought this would be a good time to talk about an entry that I used to like to use on the calendar when we were running the daily calendar or the print calendar. I would certainly reserve this one if I could, if I hadn't used it in recent years. It was your entry on the word romantic. Right. I think you put that in the book for a particular reason, because you had some history with the word and with the concept. Let's just start with reading that, shall we? Okay, romantic. If you are studying the arts, it's important to know that the word romantic is used in such contexts to mean much more than having to do with romantic love. It originated in the Middle Ages to label sensational narratives written in Romance languages rather than Latin depicting events like the fall of King Arthur's Round Table. In French, novels are still called romans, R-O-M-A-N-S, whether they depict love affairs or not. In literature and art, it often refers to materials that are horrifying, exotic, enthralling, or otherwise emotionally stimulating to an extreme degree. A romantic art song is as likely to be about death as about love. Well, that pulls it apart a little bit. Um... So much of the time we use the word romantic and associate it strictly with the heartthrob side of it or the love side of it. Um, but this is a huge concept. Romanticism is a huge concept to unpack. Can we start with the word romantic and do a little etymology? You mentioned the word, the French word, they still call it um, roman, uh, whether they depict love affairs or not. And right there is the word Romans. Right. <laughs> if I read in English, I read Romans. Well, it comes from the word Roman, right? Right. And we know that today we still call languages which descended from or heavily influenced by Latin uh, Romance languages. And that doesn't mean they're languages for courting, but that they are connected with the Roman tradition, Romanian being an obvious example, but French and Spanish. And, of course, about half or more of English. English is this odd hybrid uh, blend of Germanic and Romance origins, mainly French coming in with the Norman conquest. Yeah, in the Middle Ages, uh, Roman was a long narrative. At first, they were written in verse, and later, by the 15th century, in prose. And these succeeded the chansons de geste. The chansons de geste, the songs of deeds, were things like the Song of Roland, mostly about fighting, <laughs> a lot of warfare, a lot of combat, very little about women, uh, very little about love. 
uh, the 12th century European culture undergoes a great transformation in which uh, a number of striking things happen. Uh, one is the promotion of the importance of Mary in uh, Catholic worship and simultaneously interest in women and women as love objects, particularly, and stories about love and romance. And out of that emerges uh, things uh, like the Roman del Graal, which is the Grail romance, which goes on to be hugely popular right down to the days of Richard Wagner, um, which has love in it and adventure and a considerable amount of fighting as well and, and mysticism of a religious nature uh, all blended together. The idea of the fantastic being connected with uh, romance starts there because these are now stories that are the ideal of what uh, should have happened in the past as King Arthur. Arthur, of course, the historical Arthur was a fifth century person who actually lived during the very declining days of the Roman Empire. And uh, he is totally recreated in the 12th century by various writers, mostly in France, although he was, you'd say, English, uh, British anyway, and as an idealized figure. And you get all the stories that we know from the various movies and books and um Every possible medium, of course, there's always new stories about the Knights of the Round Table. Monty Python takes their <laughs> approach mm -hmm. to it. So romance um, means at the same time a, a particular kind of narrative, a long, complex narrative with lots of adventure in it. And then it gets associated with love stories. And, of course, Lancelot and Guinevere's romance being a very famous one. And Tristan and Isolde's another. Um, those are probably the best known to the modern public. There are plenty more. But um, eventually the word gets narrowed down and the adventure part of it tends to fade somewhere. Um, and today, as somebody said, that was really romantic. And that's all you heard of the conversation. You walked into a room, somebody just said, well, that was really romantic. You probably think of uh, maybe some guy presenting a bouquet to his girlfriend rather than uh, a couple of nights jousting somewhere. So it really has gotten narrowed down. My wife was a music librarian, and she told me one time that in February, the uh, secretary of the music department, had put up a display of pictures of romantic composers from the 19th century uh, for Valentine's Day. And this irritated her, partly because she's not a big fan of romantic music, but also because it, it shows this basic misunderstanding about uh, what romanticism of Schumann and Schubert and Brahms and all those guys was really about, which wasn't just love by any means. Well, just to... Um pin it back to where you started it all starts with this concept of using the vernacular rather than latin yes and as almost a, like a point of contrast and it, so i want to transition here to your essay on romanticism which appears on your website and you tell me is hugely popular uh just to try to make a contrast here between the romance languages and latin there is a concept that latin is for uh, formal occasions it's for I don't know if you want to say high-minded occasions or anything like that, but... Uh, a lot of use of it in scientific terminology, for instance. Yeah, and um, and the Romance languages, what Latin morphed into among the people is sort of like the folk language. Right. And 
that has its own traditions and its own history and that's where we're getting romanticism from and that is sort of where you start your essay on romanticism right i want to say also that this essay was written for a class that i've talked about before on this podcast uh called reason romanticism and revolution uh and also another class love in the arts and both of those classes had a lot to say about the history of Romanticism. And so I wrote this actually for the first one, Reason, Romanticism, and Revolution. It was a study of a handful of classics of literature, art, and music, and philosophy from Western Europe in the late 18th and 19th centuries, tracing the evolution of things. So there's a, a background of the Enlightenment um, a period that stressed a lot of rationality and scientific thinking, rejection of superstition and so on, um, and a backlash against it, which is romanticism. Well, let's go ahead and start there. It's not really the Enlightenment versus romanticism, though, is it exactly? It's it's kind of an evolutionary thing, and it's a little bit of yin and yang. Well, in the essay, the way I explain it is that it's a mistake always in history to speak of pendulum swings. Uh, that's not the way a social history, intellectual history works. It's more like a one wave coming in while another's going out and they're getting all tumbled together in the foam and some things get mixed in and uh, other things are lost, but it's very complex. And there are parts of the Enlightenment that continue to be very strong and influential. But Romanticism to me is fascinating because it is of all the great intellectual, cultural movements of Western civilization. It's the one that's been the most widespread, the most pervasive, affected the most different aspects of life and culture, and lasted the longest. Um, Marxism doesn't come even close, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and nor does democracy, or even, I would say, maybe Christianity to an extent uh, but uh, Christianity itself has gone through many, many changes and upheavals and also been influenced by Romanticism. So uh, if it has any rival for influence, it would probably be Christianity. But it's that big, it's that important. And it's been scorned and despised a lot, especially in modern times, but it just keeps powering along. Now, would you say that Christianity has been influenced by Romanticism more than Romanticism has been influenced by Christianity? Uh, it goes both ways. I mean, the veneration of the Virgin Mary and the uh, creation of the Gothic churches, uh, both were powerful influences on Romanticism. When I mean, you look at a lot of the um, neo-Gothic churches that were built in the 19th century, those were... Uh, and part of the impulse of the Romantics to look back to the period before the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment scorned those old Gothic churches, saw it, thought they were needlessly ornate and irrational, uh, too exuberant, too uh, showy and self-indulgent and so on, and uh, preferred the uh, Greek temple sort of model of architecture, whereas the Romantics in the 19th century thought, wow, the more aspires, the better. Some people know that uh, Notre Dame Cathedral, which is one of the great Gothic cathedrals, when it was restored in the 19th century by Viollet-le-Duc, 
he put on an enormous number of little decorative details, including many of the gargoyles that we see. Often when you see films of Notre Dame, you see these close-ups of the gargoyles up on the roof line. Most of those were not on the original building. They're not medieval. They were 19th century. So he was playing around with this concept. Even uh, churches that we see around us today in America are very often modeled on that romantic revival of the Gothic style. So, uh, yeah, there's a, a certain amount of influence. The Enlightenment tended to be very anti-religious and uh, promoted the notion of deism, which we've talked about before, which is kind of a non-religious religion, a philosophy anyway, that uh, says, well, yes, there may be a God, but uh, he's not really relevant <laughs> to anything. He's just the uh, maybe the creator and sort of the underlying principle of things, but he doesn't have anything to say to us, and, and we don't need to talk to him. And then there's this wave of uh, enthusiasm for religion that comes back. But there are many different aspects of it. Some of them lead to uh, things like the Great Revival in the 19th century. But in the sort of cultural realm that I'm talking about here, the arts especially, um, it leads more toward mysticism and an interest in uh, nature worship and revival of adoration of pagan things and playing around with the whole concept. One of the most uh, interesting aspects of this is, to me, the way that religion becomes, um, well, almost Disneyfied, <laughs> romanticized, in that uh, I used to teach Goethe's Faust, and it's one of my favorite literary works, and in Germany is considered uh, very pinnacle of German literature. Not too many Americans read it, but it's, it's a wonderful work if you know how to skip some of the more boring passages. But it starts off in heaven, and it starts off with the angels singing about heaven and God's greatness. And then Mephistopheles, the devil, steps in and says, I don't know why you guys are talking about when I look at the God's creation. All I see is a lot of people being miserable and suffering and dying and having a terrible time. And, and he promotes the idea that Satan is the one who really understands people because uh, human suffering is his business. That's his specialty. And God is up there looking at the, the stars and he has the angels praising him and all this stuff. And and Mephistopheles says, no, that's not really what humanity is all about. And at the end of the play, just to throw a spoiler in here, uh, Faust has done all these terrible things, seduced a young girl, got her pregnant, she dies. Um, he's caused people terrible suffering on a vast scale. And yet at the end, he is saved, not because he's repented. He hasn't. Not because he's become religious. He hasn't but because he is much loved by the girl that he seduced even after death. Now, that is a very romantic idea, and it's not at all religious. Um, I used to point out to my students, uh, you know, a lot of romantic composers like to set to music the last scene of Faust where he ascends into heaven, but almost nobody pays any attention to the penultimate scene, the one just before that. Faust dies and Mephistopheles comes in to claim his soul. As most people know that Faust makes this bargain with the devil saying uh, that he will be given uh, these great powers, wealth and, and uh, well, mainly um, 
youth and health and being restored to, and so he can have love affairs and he can do all kinds of other things. And he says, uh, you know, as soon as uh, I'm satisfied, I want to die then because I just feel this yearning, this endless longing, which is one of the quintessential romantic ideas, this reaching out forever to something higher. And he just goes from one crime to another, essentially. But he says, if I'm ever truly satisfied, let me die. And and the Bible says, and then you can have my soul. And Mephistopheles says, okay, that's a bargain. I get to take you and presumably torture you in hell forever if you're not satisfied. And, and the fact is that when he dies, uh, Mephistopheles expects him to be his. He calls on these cherubs. Mephistopheles is diverted from paying close attention. He's told all of his followers to look at Faust's body. And he says, sometimes the soul escapes out through the mouth, sometimes through one of the lower orifices. So you got to catch it when it comes out, which is pretty gross. <laughs> but then his attention is distracted when he looks up and sees the cherubs coming down to fetch Faust's soul. He looks up underneath their smocks and is viewing their bare behinds underneath and that's how they get through and manage to grab Valsol and take him off to heaven. That is not a devout depiction of salvation, but it's very romantic in the, in the Goethe sense of things. What Goethe does is play with Christian tradition as if it were on a par with classical tradition and, and pagan tradition. And he introduces all three into his play. He has Faust at one point have a love affair with Helen of Troy. He, of course, has a famous uh, scene where he's cavorting with witches. Um, so you have all three of these traditions, and they're all pretty much on the same level. Now, what's happened is he's erasing the idea of the secular on the one hand and the superstitious on the other, and then finally up at the top traditionally was the Christian. And he's just putting them all on the same level and, and blending them together and swapping back and forth and saying, gee, isn't this fun? And the basic theme here is well, you guys in the Enlightenment were boring. You just rejected all of these levels because you thought they were irrational. But yeah, okay, we know better. We don't really absorb ourselves fully into these anymore. But they're a lot of fun to play with, and there's something very human in them. So let's dig in there and, and really have a good time with it. There's a sort of almost adolescent rebellious spirit in the early romanticism that says, okay, we know this may not be good in the traditional sense or moral or pious, but wow, we are going to have a good time. Right, and that is in contrast to the older, or I should say the classical tradition, where it's much more formal, and there are forms that you should follow that are more pious, maybe, or I'm using all these loaded terms, but um, the idea is that there's a certain amount of, and you mentioned nationalism in your essay, right. uh, there's a certain amount of nationalism that is inherent in this, in that this is the art of the people, this is folk art uh, in its origin. And as such, it comes from the nation that the art comes from. So the classical style, and just to transpose what you're talking about to music, we think of Haydn and Mozart as classical composers who 
in the Western tradition could uh, hop all around from country to country. They could live in Paris, they could live in Austria, they could go live in Germany. If they, Wherever they are, they're doing the music that they do, and the music is understood to be that is the style, mm-hmm. and that's the approved style. Uh, as we move into romantic composers, uh, Schubert and Schumann and, and um, Brahms later on, these composers are much more conjoined with the the micro areas of Europe that they are composing in. Well, especially the later 19th century becomes very nationalistic. I mean, you have composers like Sibelius. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. Uh, Wagner. Yeah. Who really identify their nation's history and mythology with their music. Yeah, Schubert might be more of a transition figure in that. And Chopin, uh, you know, writing Polonaise because he was Polish, although he was working in France. We identify these romantic composers much more closely with the area that they're working in, uh, their geographic locations, you know, as much as we think about their music. Yeah, some of them had huge international influence. Brahms certainly did, and later Wagner actually does too, but much more emphasis on, on your cultural background. But in, in literature in particular, there is a tendency to try to draw on popular culture. That's what Goethe is doing in Faust with uh, a lot of his uh, witchcraft ideas. Uh, when he was writing this, he had gone up onto a mountain which was reputed to be a a celebration place for witches' Sabbaths and slept overnight and, you know, were out in the outdoors. The whole idea of camping up on a mountain, that's a very romantic idea. It's not something people did in the Enlightenment unless they were shepherds or somebody who had to. And the idea of trying to merge in with nature on the one hand and the supernatural on the other and then sort of celebrating that instead of uh, being afraid of it, as people would have, say, the 16th, 17th century, it was a huge hysteria against witchcraft. And for Goethe, witches are fun. (laughs) They're really interesting, and he does some outrageous things with his witches. Yeah, the popular culture thing, it really emerges in two countries, uh, England and Germany. And the Germans really started off, and everybody knows about Grimm's fairy tales, uh, Jakob and Wilhelm Grimm go around and interview uh, ordinary people and get them to tell them their old traditional stories, uh, like Cinderella and Red Riding Hood and all these ones that are so familiar and a lot that aren't so familiar, and record them. Now, they were not ethnologists in the modern sense. They uh, shaped the stories very much the way they wanted to. But uh, these were not particularly children's stories to begin with. Many of them were quite grim in the G-R-I-M sense, as well as the G-R-I-M-M sense. Quite violent. Uh, one detail that always comes to my mind is Cinderella, when the uh, wicked stepsisters try on the shoes. One of them uh, cuts off the heel of her foot so she can try to cram it into the glass slipper. <laughs> Oh, it gets a lot worse than that. Do you remember the juniper tree? We don't tell the juniper tree to our children so much. I haven't read that in years. It's the one where the girl's brother gets beheaded and uh, his head gets propped up on his body and he gets stuck in the corner of the house and it just goes on from there. (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, Little Red Riding Hood did not always escape alive from the wolf's belly either. Right. Anyway, 
they were looking for something new and exciting and different. And that's part of what Romanticism was all about, the classical area of the Renaissance and its continuation and development into the Enlightenment was about looking to the past and looking for guidelines that are sort of eternal, that first emerged in ancient Greece and Rome and then can be guidelines to the way to live and think and create art in modern times. And uh, the romantic impulse is all about, oh, well, yeah, but that is boring. (laughs) What else is happening out there that you guys aren't paying attention to? And folklore, fairy tales are one of those kinds of things. In England, we have uh, Addison and Steele, Joseph Addison and Richard Steele, who aren't much read today, but were very popular in their time, who did a series of articles about the traditional English ballads and treated them as poetry, uh, very much in the way that uh, Bob Dylan's songs have got the Nobel Prize for poetry for literature recently. Um, and that that was revolutionary. This notion that uh, you didn't go to school and learn a lot of Latin and read a lot of classical poetry to do something. You could just ask a farmer out in his field to sing you a ballad about how some girl got pregnant and then died by the river while her lover went marching off as a soldier or whatever. (laughs) A lot of them were sensational. A lot of them involve uh, women being seduced and abandoned to a tremendous degree. I'm thinking of Alan Lomax also with his tape recorder going through the South and recording old blues and folk musicians. You know, these recordings, these tapes, and uh, elevating these songs up to objects that then, yes, uh, Dylan and other folk singers will then adopt and adapt and move forward from there. Right. Yeah, the whole uh, idea of of Vaughn Williams in England collecting uh, folk melodies to use in his compositions as a late romantic composer, um, part of that tradition. This becomes very, very important. And, of course, they romanticized this in thinking that uh, there are no authors to these works. Mm -hmm. It's just the collective folk unconscious expressing itself. We tend to be much more skeptical about that nowadays and say, well, surely somebody wrote a version of one of these down and people have uh, misremembered it or done conscious variations on it. Um, but uh, we may not know the names of the original creators of the core of these traditions, but stories don't just burst up out of nowhere. They have to have a starting point somewhere. We're all very familiar with this on the web now where a lot of stuff gets anonymized very quickly mm-hmm. and you know, if it catches the popular imagination, then it's just there and whoever's name was originally attached to it gets stripped off. So there's a lot of that going on, too. It gets difficult to tell sometimes, like uh, I think uh, Goodnight Irene, for instance, was presented as a folk song, which was actually not. And um, I remember growing up and being told that Paul Bunyan was a folk hero you know, with his big blue ox babe. That was invented by a publicity firm hired by the lumber industry (laughs) to promote uh, support for what they were doing. It it didn't come out of any old tradition at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the, the idea of the folk mind and the popular culture and so on, all of that is born during the Romantic movement. It's very much at the heart of it. Right. Well, um, can we talk more about romanticism and continue talking about your essay on romanticism next time? Sure. 
Yeah, we still have a little time before Valentine's holiday kicks in, so I think we can talk about this subject some more. We've got a good start here, talking about the origins of romanticism, um, the origins of the word romantic, and also getting a little bit into how things get started with uh, folklore and popular art, and nationalism is important, too. We'll talk more about all of that later. Thank you, Paul. Okay, thank you, Tom. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.